0: Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who put the fine in fine woodworking: Mark, Shannon, and Matt. Welcome to Wood Talk. This is show number four fifty-three for November twelfth, twenty eighteen. And on let's see, today's show we're going to talk about I don't know what's here: spring pole lathes, tool maintenance, joiners, and table saws. Wood not being dried correctly, lumber storage, and then fine tuning with the jointer I think Yeah, basically so those woodworking are, topics it's all, you know woodworking stuff we've talked about it before right we'll on. talk about it again that's what we do here uh, and it's actually an all voicemail show so that's always cool
1: sweet so we just play the voicemails and we sit back and do yeah, actually,
0: I, like I did last time I think I gotta go somewhere I'll just let the show run and, uh, yes. <laughs> you guys have a good time let me know how it works out play them all in advance and hope we remember <clears throat> yeah that was a good time Yeah, all right, so first one here is from Spence, and he's got a question about, um, tuning up tools.
2: Good morning, gentlemen. This is Spencer from Lake Geneva again. Um, I have a quick question, but I feel like you could use some backstory first. Uh, a couple years ago, my dad and I got into our head that we wanted to build a boat. Uh, so he had just retired, and I went ahead and quit my watchmaking job in the city, and, um... That
0: immediately sounds like we're in a different like century, right? We're going to go build a boat so I quit my, my watchmaking job. Is, is this a job. true story or
1: is this like
3: This voicemail is coming from the days of yore. Okay. Direct to us uh, from yore.
0: Uh, it's just, it was it's a very unique way to like present It could it be set good lyrics too. This quit my watchmaking job in the city. <laughs>
3: yeah, Working every day.
0: <laughs> Perfect Okay, here we go Sorry Spence, Not, didn't mean to make fun of you
2: First thing we had to do of course was outfit the shop well, We were lucky enough to be able to do that from the ground up in one go um, So we, the first major decision we had to come across was uh, what color to pick um, So we ended up going with that lovely mustard dark yellow color that I know Mark is so fond of um, mm-hmm. anyway, The tools have been great um, But uh, we're struggling with maintenance Um, You know, we've been running for about two years now, on and off. You know, not every single day. Every tool's not used every day, as I'm sure you well know. Um, But, uh, you know, the belt on the the 14-inch planer's kind of worn out. And, and, you know, the oiling schedule we're a little confused on. Anyway, we could go down it, but we have um, the 6-inch joiner, 14-inch planer, um, and uh, drill press. We have a saw stop. Anyway, um, what do you guys do for maintenance, like oiling, especially Mark, with with that planer, you know, we got the the screws you can unscrew to add oil. What do you do? I would love to hear how you guys handle your tool maintenance. Thanks a bunch and thanks not for quitting. Bye.
0: All right, so this is kind of a tool by tool basis. I mean, every tool is a little bit different. Some have more high wear parts that you need to uh, to take a look at. I don't know, maybe someday we could do like a whole episode on tool maintenance, which would be so boring. (laughs) But, but we could do it. (laughs) I I just slap on some Earl and some wax and it's good. All right. So uh, let's talk about the planer for instance. Uh, You know, for me, the most common and like frequent thing that I'm going to do is simply waxing the beds. Uh, If you're in a high humidity area, maybe you've got some buildup, a little bit of rust on there or something. Hopefully that's not happening, but um, you know, cleaning that up, keeping that nice and waxed, waxing the bottom rollers uh, just making sure everything is the uh, you know nice and slick, and this way the wood just kind of moves a little bit easier over the surface. Beyond that, you've got um, you know a little turn wheel that's going to move the head up and down or move the tables up and down depending on your your particular model. Not a bad idea to find the the threads for those and lube those up, um, unless a a component specifically requires a grease like a specific kind of oil or grease. I almost always try to use dry lubricants. In this way, it's a little bit more of a, you know, less of a chance that wood dust is going to get caught in those components. Uh, That can always be an issue, especially for like on a table saw. For instance, it's constantly getting dust all over um, that, that, like, what is it? A worm gear drive dealy whacker thingy. (laughs) Very technical terms here. Dealy whacker. So I try to use dry lubrication when I can because it's just going to, you know, the dust is just going to fall off or if I hit it with some compressed air or a vacuum, it's easier to clean up. Uh, But, you know, there are certain parts that you do need to look at the manual, see what they recommend for a grease and try to get something similar. Uh, He's talking about gearbox oil when he's saying there's a few little um, bolts that you can undo. So basically, it's almost like a car in that sense. You're going to drain the oil from the bottom and replace it with new oil. Here's the thing. I did that. And my buddy David Nichols did that recently in spite of urging that he would not need to do that. But he did it anyway. (laughs) See, I did it, and then I got made fun of by old woodworkers who were like, "I think you're probably the only person who's ever actually changed their gearbox oil." <laughs> As I don't know what the, the number of hours is, but it's like thousands it's and lot. thousands of hours, right? So totally unnecessary for me to do. But I was I was having a noise that I didn't like, and I was hoping that that would have fixed it. It didn't. Just gas. Yes. Right? <laughs> <Guess. laughs> So I just, uh, I would recommend not even worrying about it. And here's the thing, a lot of those long-term sort of things that we get anxious thinking maybe we should do, maybe we shouldn't. But most of those things for I think probably most of the people who listen to the show, we're not putting enough hours in on these tools to even require that level of maintenance. Uh, I think most hobbyists can go a very long time with simply you know, just take a look at the belts. You know, if you, if you have something that's belt driven, if there's, you know, any frayed areas, problems, you might be able to spot them ahead of time, but most of the time they're going to be fine. Uh, just the basic waxing of the tables and keeping any moving parts lubricated is usually enough. Um, now, if you're a heavy use person or if you're just kind of keeping an eye on things, yeah, there might be something you have to address here or there. But as far as preventative maintenance, I don't think most of us are even putting the hours on these things. That would get to the point that you go, "Yep, time to change that gearbox oil." It's uh, you know, it's twenty fifty, <laughs> so I had it on my calendar. Twenty fifty, <laughs> yeah, the year twenty fifty. I know. Yeah, you got you got me. I Here got you. Me. Hey Siri,
3: um, add a reminder for two thousand fifty to change my gearbox oil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I
4: added change my gearbox
3: to your reminders for
0: today at eight fifty. <laughs> what did you put it for today at eight yeah. fifty? Come on, Siri. But, but, the best thing is she told you she to change your gay box. No, she Did said gearbox, that?
3: but she said gearbox, seriously, she has an
0: Australian accent. So, oh, okay. <laughs> you have her Australian. Okay. because it totally sounded like gay box, which is much more entertaining. Mark. Is that- <laughs> I-, I don't know. I'm either, not up on but you film it. You better film it when you do it. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, I mean, I'm being vague a little bit about this, but honestly, I don't really, you know, I don't really think too much about this sort of thing. Uh, I I tend to, and this may not be a good thing to do. um, I tend to kind of calibrate and fix as needed. (laughs) Like when something happens and I go, "Uh Oh, I better do something about that. Um, It's a little bit more reactive instead of proactive. Um, But you know what? Most decent tools are probably okay. Given the amount of stress that I place on them.
3: If that makes any sense. It's all about the noise, right? Like, Oh, what was that? It can be totally, Yeah, you hear something that's off. Yeah. You just, something feels different sounds different you know there's extra vibration or whatever and yeah i mean that's the only thing i can do is just react because i don't know what i'm doing
0: so <laughs> we don't know what the hell's going on <laughs> i have one machine so i keep that well maintained all right uh, let's jump into vinnie's this is going to be probably for shannon because it says spring pole leave
5: Hey, boys, Vinny in Atlanta. First off, Mark and Matt, very cool meeting you guys at the meetup when you were down here uh, a couple months ago. My question, though, is for Shannon. Shannon, I built a spring pole lathe uh, at a class with Roy Underhill for five days. Um, for the record, I recommend anyone uh, who loves woodworking, hand tool or otherwise, round up a couple bucks, get yourself some time, go to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, stay at an Airbnb and take a class with Roy, whether it's five days or one day, just... Awesome, and uh, he's more insane in person than he is on TV, if you can believe it. <laughs> um, so my question, Shannon, is I, I've got this spring pole lathe, which I love. Put it out in the driveway. The kid, my kids are as young as four and three. They play with it. Uh, there's no real danger for them, like everything else in my shop, but for a couple pinch points and uh, you know the sharp tools. My specific question is, you know, because it reciprocates back and forth. I'm unsure if I should be disengaging my tool, carbide or otherwise, with the workpiece completely, or if I should be kind of maintaining contact as it's on the upstroke, so to speak. Um, let me know. They, obviously, there's not a whole lot of books out there on how to operate a, a spring pull lathe. Uh, thanks, man. Looking forward to your feedback. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: There's a book opportunity, Shannon. Hey, there you here go. we go. I could sell to seven write. copies. <laughs> Get, get on it. It's going to be $300 a copy. <laughs> there you
3: go. It's a steal. So first things first, totally agree. Get to Pittsburgh, North Carolina. That's where the school actually is. Well worth it. Roy is just so much fun. I think I told you guys when I took a class down there, I actually right behind me was Roy's bench. So while technically Roy wasn't teaching the class, he was muttering in my ear the entire week. It was awesome. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was awesome. going, I love and you, I love, he was, he was, he was I love building, you. He was actually building um, an infield shaker cabinet for his show. Like he was, and you actually get to see just how many versions of the same cabinet he has to build in order to do an episode live. Uh, well, in one take, not live, but yeah, it was kind of interesting. And the pimento mm-hmm. cheeseburger next door is worth the price of admission. It's awesome. Okay <laughs> you kind of have priorities, you know the pimento cheeseburger, awesome, so spring pole lake this is a actually a really good question, and I'm glad that you brought up um carbide tool or otherwise. Um, first, if you're using a traditional um non you know replaceable insert tool, traditional tool with the bevel and all that stuff, there isn't really a need to retract the tool um i've I've heard some people refer to it almost as like taking a breath. You know, you're moving the tool such a minuscule amount that you're not really. So don't even think about it. Because what happens is, as that's spinning back towards you, with the bevel riding as it should be on the work, all it's happening is it's just rubbing up that bevel. And in some ways, I've heard some people say that you actually can slightly polish your cuts because as it's spinning back, you know, you're you're, you're burnishing the surface a little bit. That's with the traditional tool. No need to retract or pull back that tool at all. With a carbide insert tool, though, you will actually find that, that the vibration will pick up and you'll feel the tool wanting to jump out of your hand a little bit. Or in some instances, if you're taking a heavy cut, the um, spindle, whatever you're turning, will actually stall in the lathe because there isn't that bevel for it to ride on. A, a carbide tool is really just a scraper. So while technically there is a bevel, it's a very, very, very steep bevel and more you're you're introducing that scraper um, at the right at the point there. And if you had, say, maybe a scraper that was super, super, super sharp and maybe honed with a burr, then maybe you could get it to cut on that backstroke. But no, I think there is a little bit of retraction that has to happen. And the way I look at it when I'm using one of those um, like easy wood tools, I know that's a brand name, but that's all I can think to say when I use one of those tools is I usually have um, one hand grasping the shaft of the tool and it's kind of pressed up against the tool rest. Just slightly squeezing that my fist a little bit around the shaft of the tool will pull it back a hair um, every time the tool spins back and it will slightly disengage that cutting edge um, so you don't get excess tear out. That being said, I've never really gotten super, super like clean results on a spring pole lathe using one of those carbide tools. They're just not quite sharp enough to cut cleanly. So I will still use them as kind of a roughing cut and I may get a little bit fuzzier surface. So if you're getting a slightly fuzzier surface, because you're not retracting the tool as the, the wood spins back towards you, it's not the end of the world. Cause you're probably just going to go back and clean it up with a traditional bevel tool. So that was a really long way of saying, no, you don't have to pull the tool back. <laughs>
0: okay. It just it's occurred nice. to me that I could have as just said no, but that would have been viewed as snarky. <laughs> just a little bit okay so we got the next one here uh this one is from matt i hear a dog
6: hey wood talk guys this is matt from columbia south carolina calling again uh last time i called i created some sort of lover's quarrel between matt and mark with regards to the uh jet joiner planer (laughs) (laughs) combo sorry about that guys (laughs) i believe mark said no matt said go and shannon just did the safety dance around his workbench so i didn't end up getting that And I have about $1,200 that uh, I've gotten from selling off some of my other hobby interests. And I was wondering if I should go ahead and get a base model Powermatic 6-inch joiner. I'm getting a cheap win planer, uh, benchtop planer for Christmas. And uh, go ahead and suffer through my cheap Ryobi table saw that I have. Or should I get a Grizzly or Steelix 6-inch joiner, which I don't know the quality of that, I was wondering if you guys did, and upgrade to the $600 Delta uh, table saw that they have at Lowe's, which I'm sure I'll grow out of eventually, but I might be able to sell that off and then have extra funds at that time to buy a Powermatic or a um, saw stop. Anyway, if you guys could offer your opinions and hopefully not uh, kill each other, that would be awesome. Thanks, guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I do want to mention that he did take my advice and not yours. (laughs) He's got more. He's got too much money. That's the problem. That's what it is. Burning a hole in the pocket. Um, I'll be honest, guys, I'm dealing with this wire transfer urgent thing with payroll for the company. Like it's a stupid thing. And I was doing that while the voicemail was playing. So I didn't even listen. So Matt, you want to take this one? Uh, I can try because I was kind of the same boat as you. Uh, oh, dude. That's okay. You, no. you were doing a wire transfer too? What a coincidence. Uh, so, so the so hand, money, tool, guy, the hand
3: tool guy was listening to the power tool thing and the two. <laughs> wow.
1: It's wow. so rude. It's so rude. Here's what I have to say about this I would not buy a new six inch jointer. They're like a dime a dozen used. Yeah. Especially if you're looking to you're upgrade again or you're looking to move on to something else in the future anyway. I don't really see it really, unless you're in an area where you can't find used machines. There's always a six inch joiner on Craigslist for something. And if it's just your first one anyway, you probably don't need anything super crazy. Anyway. So you can get everything. Get everything. Why choose?
0: Just get everything. Get it all. Yeah. You can
3: have it all.
0: Okay. Shannon, you have anything to add to this? No, actually,
3: that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about, but he's right. Like, there's six inch joiners everywhere. <laughs> Because everyone's like, everyone bought one, myself included, and then mm-hmm. quickly realized, oh, I need a bigger one. Or they, you know, watched yeah. a Wood Whisperer video and was like, oh, well, <laughs> I could make stuff like that if I had those tools. And then they all went out and bought bigger ones. So yeah, the money, they're
0: all over the place. I, I actually did it twice. I think my first one was a six inch used, I think it was like a really old craftsman that I just kind of refurbed, worked okay, but had really short beds. Then I upgraded to the Powermatic 6-inch because at the time, I don't, I don't know if it's still the case, but they had the longest bed that anyone had in a 6-inch jointer. Mm-hmm. So I got that one and then eventually upgraded to the 8-inch. So I, I, I put two 6-inch used ones on the market, <laughs> you know? There you go. All right. Go. So hopefully that answered the question that was very rude of me not to listen, but this wire transfer thing was making me nervous and I, I had to deal with it. Okay, so we got a question here from Scott about wood not being dried correctly.
4: Hi, Mark, Shannon, and Matt. This is Scott from Quebec, Canada, and uh, this is my first time calling. And my question is about wood that has not been dried correctly. And uh, what I mean by that is my brother-in-law has some wood stacked in his barn, and uh, he tells me that that wood has overheated. And... um, what I think happened is that there wasn't any spacers between. So it was just put there in a pile and uh, what he tells me, it, it has overheated. So is that a common problem? Do we see that a lot? And what what is the problem with it? So can I use that? Is, there a, is it like in the center or the edge that would be maybe good or not good? So anyways, so can you help me with that? And uh, good. I love your show. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.
0: Hmm. What do you say, guys? Uh, where
3: do you live? <laughs> I mean, we're we're talking about just like air dried stuff, in, right? Isn't it Quebec? Yeah, that's it's right. A, Is it? I thought it. Well, does it get that hot anywhere on the globe that you have to worry about like case hardening from air dried lumber?
1: Uh, I uh, f- hun- Saudi over thirty hundred, four hundred and fifty degrees.
3: Yeah. Probably, I guess. I mean, <laughs> case hardening. The biggest issue is not even so much the the exact temperature, but just like how fast it happens. So I mean, I mm-hmm. suppose like if it were, but I would think that would only happen if it was like set out in the sun. You know, I mean that that kind of it has to be like that fast. Well, not that fast, but you get the you get the point. It's, I mean, if, it it, seems- if it's always a hundred degrees outside it would be more the change in temperature really fast
1: than at the actual temperature itself. I would think.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't really see this being too much. like if if it was stacked in there without stickers, like it should be covered in a mold. Yeah. Like that's what I would expect to see. Mm-hmm. And I get, and it's still fine. I guess you just have a moldy wood as you got a surface and wear a mask or whatever. But I don't, no, like overheating wise, unless it was stored like in an attic, maybe where it got really hot too. F- and it dried too quickly. Like the, the issue there is if it dried too quickly, that's your bad wood. If it was dried too slowly, then that's not really a problem. You just get mold. Hmm. Right.
3: Yeah. I I don't know. I would I would really question what that. Where is he? Where is his? You know brother getting this <laughs> that it's been overheated i mean has some of it been used and maybe it reacted weirdly i mean there's every chance that if it you know if it wasn't stickered or anything like that that could just be it could just be really wonky like you, see, you pick it up and it's all warped and twist because there was no airflow at all but i still don't think that would be an issue of, of, of case hardening because it's really what we're talking about when you overheat mm-hmm. lumber you know you you dry out the outside too fast and the inside stays moist and creamy and it cracks on you. Um, and you get that kind of Delicious. honeycombing effect that causes uh, real problems. But it seems to me he's maybe, I don't know. I'd be, I would question why do you say it's overheated? Like, you know, did something happen? <laughs> did you get kicked back on a table saw? Cause there's any number of reasons that that could happen for mm-hmm. it not being case hardened.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're on a theme here because we got a question about lumber storage from a guy. And this takes me back. I feel like it's 2008 and I got Vanderlust telling me about the router bit of the month <laughs> because it's our, our old friend, Roberto. <laughs> Roberto. Left a message. Can you believe it? Let's listen to what Roberto has to say. Hey, fellas, how's it going? This is
7: Roberto from Illinois. It's been a long time. <laughs> still hearing, still here. So I have a question for you guys. I recently acquired one heck of a deal I got about 400 to 500 board feet of solid walnut, 20 wide inch oak planks that are about 16 feet long. I got about six of those and various other mahogany and poplar and all this great stuff. Anyways, for about 200 bucks, it was a fantastic deal. So I asked the guy how long it had been sitting around. Uh, It it was a person who passed away. I asked his wife and she said she didn't know. Uh, She estimates about... 20 years. So they're now in my garage. I live in Illinois where the temperature fluctuations in the summer it gets really, really hot and humid, and in the winter it gets really cold. So, my question to you guys I'm not so much worried about warpage, they're going to be inside, but I want to use them selectively. So, how much longer do you guys think they can sit? Again, I'm not worried about warpage, but before they start rotting, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I estimate they've been sitting for at minimum 20 years, maybe even 30. I mean, how much longer do I got before I have to use them? I'm worried about, you know, bug
0: infestations, something like that. Let me know. Thanks. All right. Right on target. (laughs) So what do you, what do you guys think with this one?
1: There's really no expiration date. Yeah. Don't let the bugs on it and don't put them in the dirt. And they won't rot. I've got wood here that's sitting in here that I probably will never use, but I will have for the rest of my life.
0: Wow. It must be tough to be Cremona. Well, I mean. You got a a lumber rack, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but not not like yours. Okay. Yeah,
1: I guess. Yeah, yours is shelving standards from the home center.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm talking I'm talking about quantity here. Quantity
1: ah. is the question. Anyways,
3: well, I mean you you don't want it like Matt said, you don't want it sitting in the dirt, no ground contact. Mm-hmm. So you want to put it up off stuff. You want to keep the airflow, so keep it stickered, like we said in the last show, keep it weighted to try to, you know, restrict the movement. Restrict, control the movement. You get mm-hmm. what I mean? Um and keep it covered so that it's not in direct sunlight. So you don't get that, you know, overheating, possible drying out, um, and keep the, keep the water off of it. You know, you don't want to wrap the tarp tightly around it because then you're restricting airflow. So you need to fashion a tent of some sort. Um, or like what we do at the lumber yard, we actually use those, um, corrugated sheets. Um, we actually have been using the same ones for several decades. So I don't even know what they're made out of some sort of metal. If we did it again, you buy them in like those vinyl, um, corrugated sheets, they call them, Wiggle siding in the UK, I think, which sounds better than corrugated. So we just put that on top, so it it it's keeping water, standing water from from um, standing on the top, and they're at a slight angle, so the water runs off the side. But it pr- protects them. Um, you know, if you get a driving rain coming from the side, yes, a little bit of water can can hit those boards, but it's hitting just the edges of the boards, minimal exposure, and as long as there's stickers and plenty of airflow, you should be just fine. And that's how our air dry yards are set up. So this is before we've done any of the kiln drying, anything, any of the heat treatment or any of that stuff. So, and I mean, some of our stuff will, at longest, because we're, you know, commercial yard, but at longest, it's sitting there for eight months, eight, nine months before it goes into a kiln. There's no reason it couldn't sit there even longer. And then when the stuff comes out of the kiln, we have open sided sheds that the material can sit there for years on end before it turns.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. This uh, sounds very familiar, Matt, didn't uh, we just have a text exchange about a week ago yes. where I told, <laughs> I told Matt, like, if I have a chance to get extra kiln dried lumber stuff that I know has been kiln dried, but I don't have room for it in my shop. And is there any way that I could store this somehow someplace where the HOA won't see it in my backyard? <laughs> uh, and if I can keep it elevated off the ground and tarped am I okay? Will this stuff be good anytime I go to dig back into it? And we're, you know, I'm in Denver. So there's going to be a pretty good fluctuation of, uh, of weather types around here. And he's like, yeah, just keep it, keep it dry. Don't let it get wet. And you don't even really have to sticker it so much. Just let, let some air get under there, but not water and you should be okay. So it's kind of funny to, uh, I was actually thinking about the same exact thing. Good timing. Good, good timing and good times. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> <Good timing>. <laughs> <laughs> so Zev, Zev has a question about, uh, uh, fine-tuning with a jointer
3: hey guys zev here from queens new york uh just uh, got a question about dovetail drawers um and half blind as well um in terms of sizing them for to you know just to fine-tune the fit in a carcass um you know i see most people using a hand plane um just curious what do you think about running the sides over the jointer Instead of using a hand plane, you know, a very light cut to size it well. Um, seems a little simpler, more precise. A little nervous if it's going to do a lot of tear out and destroy my uh, nice dovetails. Anyway, just curious to get you guys the If any of you have tried this, thanks
0: so much. Keep it up. Take care. Bye. All right. So we're talking assembled carcass or assembled drawer. Like the whole side to make the whole drawer less Trimming wide
3: or flushing on the tails. Right. The face of the side down, not like the height of the drawer, in other words.
0: That's the only thing I, okay. that makes sense to me. Even if you do the height of the drawer, how would you even get that on a, yeah. a
3: jointer? I mean, you're still going to have cross grain yeah. situation in
0: the um, the back. I, I've I can that. tell you why, like theoretically, it seems like it would be okay. The, the problem is the first thing you're hitting is the end grain of the tail, or I'm sorry, the pins, right? The ends of the pins. But they're all backed up by the face grain of your side, so they are supported. It will probably be okay if you're taking a light cut but anytime I get to the point of I just went through all this trouble to make this dovetailed connection, uh, especially if it's hand cut, the last thing I'm going to do is take that to a power tool just just because you never know what's going to happen. Maybe there's a little hairline gap behind that pin and it decides to snap and now you've got a little separation there. Um, do you do you either? Well, Shannon, you won't even have the choice in your shop, <laughs> but Matt, are you are you tempted to do that sometimes?
1: Not with my dovetails. I've done it with uh, plywood drawers. And really, mm-hmm. the only really big concern is that when you get to the exit, because it's going to blow yeah. out all the fibers on the back of the drawer back. So you That's have to either point. relieve the fibers on the back or just deal with it.
0: So if he's got a rabbited back in solid wood, he's probably okay. If assuming the rabbit's oriented in yes, a way that there's no end grain,
1: you won't have the end grain from the backboard exposed in right. the that face. That's but right. if
0: he's got through dovetails in the back, yeah, then you'd yeah. be blowing out some pins. Then you got some problems. You gotta
3: put a big old chamfer back there, and even then, um, big that old scare one. Me. Yeah. <laughs> my my question is though, how oversized are you making your drawers? <laughs> like, <laughs> you got that much to remove. I you know? mean, now I always use my power joiner as like for that purpose, like milling rough lumber. So I never set it, you know, to take a 64th of an inch cut. It was taking a bigger cut than that. At Well, Mark does second. for all his
0: rough lumber. Mark's always got to a 64th. Yeah. Well, that's just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of you, man, the other day I was taking just a little bit of a pass off. I'm like, here, let me bump this up a little bit more. And I think I was, I was lucky to be taking a 64th off. And I'm like, Matt would love, Matt would love this. So
3: <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like, cause then you're, you know, you're, you're taking it off. I don't know. I mean, I guess the 64th is still pretty dang small, but mm-hmm, you know, if sure. I'm hand plating the sides of a drawer, you know, I'm removing thousands of an inch because I'm usually using a smoothing plane at that point because like Mark said, you know, I don't want to take it to a power tool. I don't even want to take like a heavy set plane to the drawer that I already spent a bunch of time in. I want like nice, light, fluffy shavings because I don't want to tear anything yeah. out. So we're thousands, three three thousandths of an inch at a time. Um,
1: just, just for the people who don't know, a 64th is 15 thousandths. I didn't know that. I just
0: did the math. Oh, that's thousandths. Okay, good to know. Never really thought I knew was a reason you're on this show. Yeah, good for you. Math.
1: Woo! You can, you've
0: added your value for the day. You can mm. just be quiet now.
1: One divided by sixty-four. Yay! <laughs> <Hey. laughs>
3: good job. So yeah, that that would just be my reaction. Is I just wonder why that's necessary, but I suppose. Well, and I guess you've got your a one hundred twenty-eighth of an inch setting, like Mark. Then, yeah, you know,
0: six thousand. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're, let's say if that you're was doing, um, yeah, he's <laughs> nice. got that More ready. That. It was that. locked and loaded. I mean, if you, if you have a whole bunch of drawers and maybe each one of them is just maybe a 64th over on each side. So like the whole thing is a 30 second. You want to take a 64th off of each and you've got 10 of these to do. Oh, okay. I mean, maybe sure. if you're trying to just speed things up a little bit, I could see it. But definitely, I don't think there's anything wrong if you're taking a light pass. Just be very aware of the grain direction and potential end grain conflicts at the back. But otherwise, I think it's probably okay. Especially if you've got a nice like spiral head cutter that doesn't leave a scallop surface. It's actually leaving a nice flat surface. Yeah, I guess why not. Yeah. If it goes
3: bad, okay. just Glue a veneer on. <laughs> yeah. You now suddenly have overlay
0: drawers. No one wants to see those tails anyway. Right, <laughs> those, <laughs> things, those things are ugly. All right, uh, well, I think that's about it for the show. Shannon, why don't you to give them the contact info and we'll get out of here?
3: Sure. If you want to get on the show, get your voicemail on the show. Then please, you got to send it to us first. So use your voice memo app on your phone or some sort of audio recording type thing. Once you've got that file, email it to us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or just write out your question at woodtalkshow.com contact or go to the episode you loved and leave the comment about how much you loved it. And yeah, that's it. That's Sweet. All, I have to say about all right.
0: That. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. And we will catch you next time. Bye-bye.
3: Love you all.